anti-racism comes down to what Jesus said about mm-hmm. loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so for me, this isn't like some secondary or tertiary issue mm-hmm. that you somehow bring in and it's like a hobby horse or whatever. It, it comes down to you. Know, the first greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. So like th- this isn't some like weird intellectual or spiritual or whatever hobby horse this is this is it like not being racist or not being sexist or not being transphobic or homophobic or queer phobic or fat phobic or ageist or ableist Mm -hmm. like these things all come down to loving people Mm -hmm. as christ loved us and as we love ourselves period Mm -hmm. hi friends Happy almost October. I'm currently recording this on the day after the first presidential debate, and I'm sure like me, you're feeling overwhelmed, exhausted, um, depleted. I don't know. I'm still having a hard time naming it all, but I do hope you take some time to rest uh, or pray or whatever practices that are helpful for you during this time. I am excited, though, for you to listen to this second part of my conversation with Ali Henny, as I think that it is so good. Uh, we talk about Pentecostalism, uh, gender and expectations of women in the church, how racism and sexism are so intertwined that it's oftentimes hard to pick the two apart, how women of color are often seen as suspect just for existing. We also talk about anti-racism work and spiritual formation, how social justice work and personal transformation go together, despite how many might pin the two against each other. With this, Ali and I engage with Paul and his commentary on Christian identity. When it comes to issues of race, what sort of things did Paul speak to and how can we read his text in such a way that informs our current reality? We also chat about holding our beliefs with an open hand being willing to learn from other denominations and expressions of faith. When reflecting on her seminary experience, Ali said that she's here or she was there to learn, not to prove what she already thought she knew to be true. And I just love that. Imagine if we all had this mentality when it came to theology, that we held the ability to be able to ask hard questions and not have to have all the answers. Lastly, Ali and I chat about how dominant culture wants to stick our communities in monolithic, non-nuanced spaces or ways of thinking and being. We dialogue about how society only ever talks about the Black community or the Latinx community in stereotypical ways, ways that erase our nuanced experiences, often leading to the dehumanizing of folks. Even progressives do this. They pity us, our communities, glossing over our rich histories and cultures. And as Ali says, concerning the black community, of course, they talk about us like all we are is poor. Don't have pity on us, Ali says. Just treat us right. And I echo her sentiments. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Don't forget to leave a review and welcome to the protagonistas. And so growing up in the black church and then 
kind of, you know, as an adult or as an older person getting involved in, in more predominantly white churches, um, what was that experience like for you? So it was, it was very interesting. So whenever I had gone off to college and by this point, um, you know, I, I mentioned that my husband, my husband who, who's white, um, he grew up Lutheran. We were kind of, you know, in, in having these conversations about well, where are we going to go to church? What are we going to do? We kind of, you know, landed on and really, I mean, the USA, we introduced him to Pentecostal theology and was sort of like, you know, cool. Yeah. Okay. That's, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of became where we decided that we wanted to be. And so where um, we went to college, there, there happened to be a lot of churches, a lot of different churches, a lot of Pentecostal churches, mm-hmm. um, but there, but not a, a large black population. And so at the time we were looking at churches kind of within that. And so there was a black church that was part of the denomination of the church that my family went to and we had tried it out and it wasn't bad, but I was kind of like, I just kind of want to spread my wings a little bit that a lot of it was wanting to kind of be a part of something different mm-hmm. and being, being, you know, 19 years old and not really having a whole lot of awareness of the, of the world right, and right. whatever. And so, you know, there, there weren't very many black Pentecostal churches. And so um, we ended up at a predominantly white Pentecostal church that, and then a lot of what drew me to that particular church was a lot of their worship and expression was familiar to me mm-hmm. um, because it was their their worship idiom was very similar to the black church and I think that there's an aspect of that 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 drew me um, I also was very interested in going to a church that was more overtly spirit-filled and the you know, long story short we just kind of felt called to go to this one church mm-hmm. and so there was a lot that was comfortable you know they attempted um, to sing some black gospel worship and whatever mm-hmm. so there was a so so there's a lot about it that was kind of that was familiar, but it definitely uh, difficult in in some ways. Pentecostalism is kind of this weird, the, the, the white Pentecostalism especially is kind of this this weird thing because Pentecostalism in America um, started out through a black man in Azusa, California, and it started out as a black church expression mm-hmm. and white people joined in, white people received the baptism of the spirit and started speaking in tongues. So a lot of them belonged to various denominations and some of them wanted to go and continue to be part of those different denominations. Mm-hmm. But because they had been able to speak in tongues, receive the gift of tongues in whatever language, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever language you want to use for that, they had an experience that fell outside the norm of some of those denominations. And so those pastors in certain denominations actually got kicked out mm. of their denominations. Mm. And in fact, the Assemblies of God was founded because it was a group of, I believe that they were Baptist pastors, had gotten kicked out of their Baptist denomination. They didn't have the ability to start their own denomination. And so it was the Church of God in Christ who had started out as a holiness denomination. And then and then um, Charles Mason, Mason, who was who was their their bishop, who became one of their one of their bishops and one of the the um kind of founding members of, of the of Church of God in Christ as we know it today. I mean, it, it had existed mm-hmm. for about 20 or 30 years before then. Church of God in Christ had taken in those white ministers and had ordained them. Mm-hmm. And then those ministers um, subsequently left the Church of God in Christ and formed the Assemblies of God. And, mm-hmm. and the reason why they left was because essentially it, com- it comes down to they didn't want to be under Black leadership. Wow. Um, the way that that I think even people in the Church of God in Christ would tell the story and the way that some Assemblies of God people would probably tell the story is, 
oh, well, you know, these white people were being persecuted and mm-hmm. you know, they're being persecuted by the people around them because they were worshiping with black people. And so they left so that whatever. But at the end of the day, like it comes down to not wanting to be under black leadership right. and not wanting to be you know, not wanting to endure um, because, because, I mean, you forget that black people were being persecuted for being black. Like right. you're, you're being persecuted for being you know, adjacent to black people. But anyway, um, because people were put out of denominations, were put out of, you know, well-known denominations, you know, Methodist denominations, Presbyterian denominations, um, Episcopal denominations, like whatever, they kind of developed this kind of, well, you know, we're not really well, like, like we're we're Christian, but we're but we're not like those other Christians kind mm-hmm. of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all, and within Pentecostal culture, even in general, there's kind of has been kind of like okay, you know, we're not like other people, mm-hmm. and so that's persisted for a very long time. But at the same time, white Pentecostals literally are evangelicals like their, right. their their denominations are literally a part of the evangelical association, mm-hmm. and it's really just been within you know, maybe the last, you know, 10, 20 years or so that Pentecostals would sort of consider themselves to be evangelical and would sort of um, consider themselves or would be considered to be part of that Mm. thing. So there's a lot of evangelical culture Mm. that a lot of whiteness, a lot of that, that would be whiteness period, whether you're Pentecostal or not, like the whiteness is going to be there, period. You've got white folks, this whiteness is going to be there, but just like a (laughs) lot of that culture seeps into has set has seeped into white Pentecostal culture and Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like this weird thing because it's like white Pentecostalism is appropriation of the black Mm -hmm. church cultural appropriation and whitewashing of black church expressions but then there's also because because you have people that that often you become Pentecostal from um, evangelical white evangelical denominations this is is all that to say is this is kind of like this just this amalgamation Mm. of stuff and so there was a lot of stuff you know that that for me was different so like you know purity culture um where you know in the in the church that I was in it wasn't like a big thing but it would mean it was absolutely purity culture absolutely was there it just what it maybe didn't show up in the same way that it would like in a Baptist church so like you know we weren't having for like our youth group we weren't giving out true love weights rings or anything like that Mm -hmm. but it was still like it was it was something that was still very much present the church that I was part of the denomination that I was a part of would definitely consider itself to be egalitarian and they did mm. ordain women as as ministers but there was a lot of complementarianism yeah. in their thought about right. about men and women um there's a lot a lot of sexism a lot of chauvinism just a lot of a lot of stuff that is endemic mm. um to white evangelical culture and, and white evangelical churches and so I mean really I mean I guess they're you know some of this stuff exists in other places, but I, I'll pick on evangelicals today. Mm-hmm. And so it was, so it, there was a lot of kind of culture shock in, in being a black woman and, you know, how I think of myself in terms of, of my gender and my gender expression and my gender performance. There was a lot of times that I was left feeling like, you know, ain't I a woman? Mm-hmm. Because people didn't, people didn't know what to do with me because right. there was like almost kind of this automatic, like masculinization mm-hmm. of me for whatever reason that I don't, I mean, you know, yeah, you know, I'm five, eight, have a deep voice. I suppose that I can be like, have an imposing figure or whatever. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. It's like people didn't quite treat me 
like a woman, mm-hmm. but they didn't quite treat me like a man either. And I, you know, so I didn't fit within, within their, their binary right. of like, like, well, you know, but, but women do this and care about this and think right. about this and whatever. I didn't quite, I, I didn't fit into those things. And so it was like, it was just because it was even the culture of the church and the culture of the denomination, there's a lot of highly gendered stuff. Yeah. And so that aspect of it, which is difficult because it's like, you know, I have different interests mm-hmm. than just being a homemaker and raising kids. And like, yeah, like these are things that that are important to me, I guess, in some in some shape, form or fashion. But also like, you know, getting my education in college is important to me. Mm. And I feel called to the ministry and would like to, you know, be a pastor of some shape, form or fashion, you know, someday. And so I didn't quite fit into people's boxes. There's just this feeling, um, I, I constantly felt like surveilled in a way, and I'm able to name it more now and, you know, you know, 15, 14, 13, 12, a decade ago. And so I'm able, so, so a, a decade removed from some of this, I'm able to name it better than I ever could have as, as, you know, as a, as a 25 year old, you know, mm-hmm. I, I am able to name it much better. But I found myself just in this place, and I realized that a lot of it was experiencing misogynoir, so experiencing mm. racialized sexism, mm. and a lot of the things that I, you know, feeling just like I said, you know, feeling really frustrated and limited in my femininity because it's like, as far as I know, I am a cisgender woman, but being treated like some other and I mean I think that a lot of that even plays into some of like the homophobia and transphobia that is present in such spaces and I can and once again I can name that now and and I you know am cisgender I am not non-binary or or trans or anything like that I mean as far as I know but certainly that situation certainly you know Mm -hmm. raised questions for me and raised questions for like like why like why are people treating me like do I not present in this way like it just I don't even really know how to name it but it was just but it was really it was hurtful for me because there was so much just toxic masculinity and for that matter toxic femininity and some people don't don't like that term I don't mean it like in the male fragile like oh toxic femininity I mean it in the sense of like where you're gonna police people and police like Mm -hmm. like you're like you're gonna look at people like they're less than because they don't perform their gender in the same way that you do and it's like yeah like in my house I'm the one that likes sports and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that sports was like a a gendered activity Mm because where I come from it's not like where 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 I come from um the women watch the football game just as much as the men do and like that's just like like that's just part of who we are we're we're gonna root just I mean in fact the women at the Kansas City Chiefs in my family is often it was the women that Mm -hmm. was that was the ones that was rooting the loudest and stuff so but in my home you know yeah I'm a sports fan you know yeah like I'm you know I'm into the Steelers and the Royals and the and the Kansas Jayhawks and it's and that's it and my husband isn't into that type of stuff if he never watched a sports ball game again in his life like he he wouldn't feel like he was missing anything (laughs) and and, you know like my husband is quiet and bookish Mm -hmm. and so it's like you needed to tell me that like there's something wrong with his masculinity which nobody ever which nobody ever questioned but it's like you're gonna act weird about me but then like the same standard that you're measuring 
him me by like if you measure him by like you're you're, you're totally really like you're yeah. saying a whole lot of things that are really right. super problematic like like and so all of that kind of comes down to uh, and it's and it wasn't just gender like that's that's just one of the things that it's like I can put my hands on also mm-hmm. I mean race and people discriminating people having a problem because we are an interracial couple and all this other mm-hmm. type of stuff it, but it, but a lot of it you know comes down to like this culture that was so different than anything that I had ever experienced and and expectations and just feeling surveilled and feeling like the way that I would talk and the way that I would say things and whatever people like treating me somehow like like I was like I was always you know suspect like Mm -hmm. I was always like like I just inherently wasn't wasn't holy enough like I wasn't Christian enough just because I existed and right. meanwhile it's like you know, people being like you know, being me being in, in a youth ministry and being a youth leader and there being you know kind of questions about like okay well you know can, can she be a youth pastor or parents going to to you know respond to that well mm-hmm. and it's like you know I'm the one out of all the youth workers here that are response that that's responsible and is trying to make sure that your kids aren't doing stupid crap. Meanwhile, yeah. you got somebody that is that's like you know showing inappropriate videos to kids. Mm-hmm. But okay, cool. Like, right, <laughs> but, but okay, right. cool. Like, I'm the one that you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stuff mm-hmm. that they knew about that that there are these other people stuff. But nothing, nothing that was untoward and and would get anybody in trouble like on a felony or anything like that. But just stuff that's right. sort of like okay, but this violates your cultural norms mm-hmm. and like you're okay with this. But then somehow, you know, I don't know, I said the word butt crack and like, you're like, you think that I'm weird That's and like, I'm suspect because I said butt crack one right. time and like, I don't even know. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely That's... was, it definitely was like, a, it was a culture shock and it was just yeah. weird to like, if there was just so much that that was like, or t- trying to articulate it, like weird it right. was, but some of it was also just like, the, like, like there's like, I've run into similar things in in different church cultures where it's like ooh this is this is really weird like this is mm-hmm. this is a, this is some white people stuff <laughs> yeah cuz it's so true like gendered and racism and the way that people that white people understand it, it's such like a complex mix right um and how whiteness does that. Because um, I had similar experiences, you know, growing up, I grew up in Miami, which is all all Latino, all Cuban. Um, and then moving, I moved to the South, very white area. And and it was the same thing. Like, it was just because I was raised by single mothers and it was very matriarchal culture. And, mm-hmm. you know, so all of a sudden I show up and it's the same thing. Like, I'm, it's, you know, I'm, I'm suspect because I, you know, mm-hmm. was raised in a it's very strong female Latina culture. You know, I remember I tried to start like a little Bible reading group with some women that were younger than me. And all, you know, all of a sudden, like the pastor was like asking questions and like trying to figure out why. And I'm just like, I just want to read the Bible, you know, like it was just like, the, mm-hmm. you know, but well. yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was just because, you know, I'm a woman. And on top of that, I'm not a white woman. And on top of, you know, and it just, there's so many layers of suspicion um, for just existing. And so I, I completely understand what you mean. And it's really interesting how you can't really pick it apart from race or gender. Like you can't really separate the two. You know what I mean? Like in oh. this sense, they're so intertwined. Sorry, were you going to say something? Oh no, I was just saying, yeah, like it, yeah. it's, it's so true. Like the two are for a long time. I struggled with like, 
was this racism that I experienced or was it it sexism? And it's like, actually it was both. Right. And it's just so, it's so sinister because it's so hard to pull apart. And, and so then you start to question everything about yourself from, you know, like just everything, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's so, so intimately connected. And I remember, you know, as I, as I got older, the same thing, and I'm trying to make sense of it. I remember thinking, well, I think I experienced sexism first, you know, like I remember thinking like, I think it was, and I think the sexism was worse, but you know, granted I have light skin. So of course there's even things that come along with that. Um, But Mm -hmm. it, it really was this really intertwined weird thing that I still struggle trying to pull apart. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So, like that, that is so true. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, several, after I had left that, that church, uh, had moved, had moved someplace else and was talking to someone kind of about the experience and just, and just kind of, you know, stuff just kind of came up. And I remember just feeling like, yeah, it was sexism. Right. But then, like being like, but uh, but actually, it's it racism too. Right. Like, right. and just and just having this moment because because I, I think that for a long time, I sort of because because the sexism I think was this is gonna sound really weird, but I think that the sexism was easier to see. Right. Yes. Because yes. it was easier to see because it was like okay, so you're gonna have like all these guys preach right, in the main right. church but then you're not going to give me the opportunity to do it right why like mm-hmm. um and the, but then there you know there are times i got opportunities other people didn't and then it's easier for somebody i remember um the first staff meeting that i had with uh the youth staff after i had finally become the the one of the directors of student ministries at this church and I remember, like, there's a dude that walked out of the meeting mm, and wow. ended up like, walked out of the meeting, ended up just, you know, walking away from the staff. And so my, my counterpart had talked to the guy. And so he was like, yeah, it's because you're a woman. Like, kind of like, like because I think that that was easier for, like, like, that was something that was easier for people to name. Like, right, they could, right, right. like, exactly. in, in that culture, it was okay for them to name right. that, that they didn't want to follow a woman in leadership. Exactly. It, it, it's, it, it's a lot more unsavory to say, like, I don't want to, I don't like this person because they're black. Right, and right, so right, yeah. like I think that it was easier for people to kind of for even for for some of the men to kind of own it because they weren't because mm-hmm. like nobody was gonna nobody's gonna check them exactly. on that's, it yeah. like like like, like, like who's theology. gonna check me if I say well you know I, I feel convicted that I shouldn't follow exactly. a woman I mean who's gonna check you exactly. like but if you're like if you say the same thing about about black people then that like socially is not quite as acceptable it's not something that you can that you can say loud some of these because like I said it was it was a quote-unquote egalitarian context mm-hmm. but whenever I think about how some of these same men treated white women who were yeah. in positions of leadership they treated me completely different mm-hmm. like at yeah. the at the end of the day like they like like all, all things held the same they they treated me completely different and it wasn't a good kind of different yeah 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 yeah. wow and it's one of those things that it's going to take forever to fully pick apart and to and constantly be walking in that because even in yeah like you said in egalitarian spaces you're still going to experience those kinds of things Mm -hmm. so Wow. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about church and I am interested in, okay. So this is something that I think about. And I think something that I appreciate about you is that you're still very much committed to the church, right? Whether it's committed to finding what fits for you, whether it's committed to serving in it, working in it, to pastoring to it. Um, and I, a lot of our conversations just in general in society, uh, when we talk about anti-racism work and when we talk about a lot of these things, 
it's easy for it to become one or the other, right? Like it's easy to disconnect Mm -hmm. anti-racism work from like spiritual formation or from how like that being an act of spiritual, like that being a spiritual discipline, right? Like anti-racism work as spiritual discipline or, you know, these sort of things. And so you... Um, you know, as a, a an activist, as a black woman committed and connected to the church, how do you, um, yeah, like how has your relationship to those things sort of d- developed, and how do you, how do you hope to disciple other people in the in the connection of these two, in 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 sort of this idea that anti racism work is a spiritual discipline, at, you know, as Christians, like that is something that we're trying to work to in our, in our, you know, our developing our quote unquote holiness or godliness or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I think that, you know, for me, anti-racism comes down to what Jesus said about mm-hmm. loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so for me, this isn't like some secondary or tertiary issue mm-hmm that you somehow bring in and it's like a hobby horse or whatever, it it comes down to, you know, the first greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. So like, this isn't some like weird intellectual or spiritual or whatever hobby horse. This is, this is it. Like not being racist or not being sexist or not being transphobic or homophobic or queer phobic or fat phobic or ageist or ableist. Mm -hmm. Like these things all come down to loving people Mm -hmm. as Christ loved us and as we love ourselves, period. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that like, like it's a a shame, I'll say it this way, because it does and it ends up requiring like a whole other discipleship, a whole other whatever, but it shouldn't. This is just part of loving people. Right. And so I think that it's that in that, that my heart as somebody that feels called to pastor and feels called to lead for me, this is just part of that. It's mm-hmm. just, it's part of justice, doing doing right by people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately in our society, we, we have, we have to elucidate it a lot more. We have to say like, this is, this is what this is and have to outline it a lot more because in our society, it's acceptable to be racist. Right. Um, it's acceptable to, to espouse and embody certain brands of racism. And mm-hmm. so, and, and other forms of oppression is just kind of normal. So unfortunately we we have to go in and we have to unpack it and we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But honestly, you know, whenever you think about the epistles, whenever you think about like the pastoral epistles, Paul was doing the same thing mm-hmm. in his day. Yes. Now there, there was, you know, Romans deals pretty well with um, what we might consider today to be racism. Some of Paul's discussion, a lot of people want to try to deflect it to Israel. They want to try mm-hmm. to make Romans about salvation. Yeah. But whenever you, you read Romans 1 and Romans 2, that, that really, and, and even um, Romans 3, like the stage that Paul is setting here, a lot of people treat it like oh he's setting up he's talking about salvation or you know he's talking about the role of 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 jewish people and gentiles in the kingdom and blah 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 blah. and yes those things are present those Mm -hmm. things you you can definitely pull those those threads out of it but paul wasn't necessarily writing about personal salvation right one of the things that paul was writing about in this was because what was was christian identity because Mm -hmm. you had people who were who 
who were descended from Jewish people, and they occupied a certain status and a certain class with within the church. And then you had some of these people who were who were Gentiles who who, who had converted. And so the question being, well, okay, what are they converting to? What mm-hmm. does this mean? What does it What does it mean for them? Um, are they Are they Jews? Are they Are they Are they Gentiles? Right. Are they something completely different? And so Paul is is writing into that, and so he's writing into some of the some of the assumptions, some of the the, the different injustices and different and different ways that that people were put down right. in that type in in that context. And so that's that's one of the things that we need to bear in mind whenever we read Paul. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's one of those one of those things where it's it's there, but but it's in the and and you talk about um, I, I said this to say that you know we talk about justice, we talk about racism, we talk all about this stuff. So, you know, some of that stuff is is implicit in the Bible, but we also don't need to make the scripture like say things that that it doesn't say because there, there weren't black people and white people right. whenever Paul was writing that whiteness wasn't created as a, as a category, so we can't you know we can't make the, the Bible say things that it isn't saying. But I think that Paul was speaking into certain realities mm-hmm. of his day in those letters and so it, it, as he's pastoring these people as he's leading these people as he's acting as an apostle toward the various churches toward the church in Corinth and Colossae and Thessalonica and Rome as he's as he's acting in this in this place of spiritual authority he's speaking to the things that are of concern to those people in their day and he's trying to teach them and disciple them and help them to be able to grow in the faith and so if paul were alive today and if christianity you know had had just happened i mean i guess you know like like if if jesus was being crucified in like 1995 or something like that and then you have paul you know coming along or jesus was being you know being crucified you know in in 2015 or, or whatever a lot of the things that paul would write about would be things that we're that we're talking about, and there would be things that he would that he would speak to, and there would be realities and and things that he would be writing about that it would it might be different if he was if Paul was writing about you know twenty first century America and was writing you know instead of to to the church in Rome he was writing to the church in Los Angeles right, right. and instead of Colossae he's writing to Chicago mm-hmm. instead of Thessalonica mm-hmm. he's writing to Birmingham right like what he would be talking about would probably be the subject matter would would be different mm-hmm. but the message would yeah. still be the same yep. and so I think that that that's something that that we miss in that we, we, we have a tendency sometimes to make the Bible like the things that it's talking about is only the things that it's talking about. And so we, so if it doesn't talk about it explicitly, then we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to care about it. So, Oh, Hey, the Bible doesn't mention racism by name. Yeah, so yeah. we can't, so we can't care about it. And it's like, okay, but like, it's there. Right. right <laughs> like whenever right. you're reading about the widows in the, the Hellenistic widows in the book of Acts, like saying, hold on a second, like, we ain't getting no food, mm-hmm. like, y'all taking care of the Jewish widows, but, right. like, we're just being left here. Right. Like, we, That's we ethnocentrism. We that. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's so good. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. But anyway. Actually, I took a, a racism in the New Testament class with Love Seacrest right before she left. Um, and I'll also... Oh, wow. Her. Lucky. Yeah. That was so good. Um, and I'll include her book in the show notes, actually, because it was it was really good. But... Um, one of the things that she really tried to make us understand about Paul, you know, she's a Pauline scholar. And one of the things that she tried to make us understand about Paul is that 
you know, a huge, like you were saying, Paul, what he's talking about is identity, about how the Jews shouldn't impose their cultural norms on another body of people, on another group of people, and, and to let that other group of people be fully them in their expression of following Jesus. And similar to the Gentiles, like the Gentiles can live out their expression of Jesus the way that they live it out, but they are not to put their cultural norms on others. And so when Jesus died and invited, you know, all peoples to into this this whatever into this relationship into this religion into this whatever you want to call it into following him it was sort of this invitation of bringing you your identity your culture your personhood into this and let that be what it is you know what i mean and so that was something that was so big for me mm -hmm. like Paul is is arguing for a bi at that time a bi cultured body in the sense that you had Jews and Gentiles. Now in our day, like you know, like you said, it's going to look very different, but it's the same idea. You know, like you bring your your cultural expressions, your personhood, your um, you know, your your peoplehood into this, and and you you serve God and you uh you know follow Jesus with all of that included. You know. And that right there is what whiteness does, is remove all of those things, right? Remove, and whiteness mm -hmm. particularly within the church. So anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Like I said, I'll include that in the show notes. But yeah, it, I think that uh, as far as Romans goes, something that I, I love to remind people of is like, you know, Paul wasn't writing systematic theology when he wrote Romans, you know, like he wasn't well, like trying, you know, he wasn't like, well, I'm going to write, you know, Wayne Grudem's, you know, systematic, like he wasn't mm -hmm. doing that. So yeah, that makes such a big difference when you understand it differently. Um, yes, absolutely. Okay. So I would love to hear about your spiritual formation and practices um, just in your everyday life as a black woman, mother, wife, activist, and just a leader, um, you know, a voice. Like, how do you, as you, because that's, you know, emotional work, emotional labor in, in the work that you do and, in, in, you know, the things that you write and the things that you say. And, and, and of course, like your theological education speaks into that, all of these things. So how do you, um, how does just, yeah, spiritual formation, spiritual practices look in your daily life? Yeah, so I try very hard every day to there's a there's a podcast that I listen to that is the daily office the daily office essentially is an Anglican thing Anglicans uh Episcopalians mm -hmm. use this thing called the book of common prayer that had it highlights like just different prayers it has like the way out of our services and stuff in it and so there's this thing called the daily office um where you can pray like different points in the day and it has um, some different prayers that go along with it and then there's there's scripture reading um, for every day um, this podcast that that I listen to it does like a morning prayer midday prayer and evening prayer and so um, one of the spiritual practices I, I try to engage in every day is to at least do like the morning prayer Mm -hmm. um, with that along with that podcast so listening to that podcast and being able to have um, a chance to listen to the word and to pray along with um, some of those prayers. So that's something that I, that I do this kind of a, a set kind of solid practice. My philosophy is that like prayer is something that can be done anywhere 
at any time. Mm. And I, you know, I have kind of some set prayers that I do. Like, but besides that, like the prayer can be done any, anywhere, anytime. So I try to make it a habit that whenever I go to the bathroom, because mm. that is a very, like, that's a consistent thing. Right. <laughs> like you're, like, you're going to like go to the bathroom multiple times a day is that I try to take time as I'm going to the restroom to pray. And so sometimes those prayers just kind of look like a deep sigh and exhale mm-hmm. and just kind of asking, you know, the Holy Spirit to to be present with me. And sometimes that looks like, you know, praying in, in my prayer language or, or tongues is what maybe what some people um, would would call that. Um, you know, it might look like just you know, having a, a time where while I'm in there of praying with my understanding. I know that that's unusual. People are probably like, oh my gosh, she's so weird. Like, why would she, <laughs> no, why would I think that's actually that? so smart. But it's, but it's like that, like that is something that you do consistently and same right. with, with taking a shower. I use that as, as my prayer time. It's something that allows me to then be present with God multiple times a day because you know, you go, right. and you have to go and when you have to go, you have to go. And that's something that I've done for years, even before I had kids. And there have been times incidentally that, you know, the Lord has met me in those, in those times, <laughs> um, you know, one of those times whenever I was pregnant with my youngest and the Lord told me to go to seminary wow. while I was in the bath, while I was in the bathroom. And so <laughs> probably two, three o'clock in the morning, wow. um, going because my child was on my bladder. So that is, you know, that's a thing. And so I guess you, you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that. <laughs> but but you know, I've I've had I've had moments of deep revelation and understanding while I was in bathrooms. So that's a that's a spiritual practice that, that sustains me. Um, I, love you it. Know, I, I try to do other to, to do other and engage with um, spiritual disciplines like the prayer of examine or um, praying the Anglican rosary or different things. And so you know, I, I I love um, spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines and that Yeah, that's so good. I actually love that going to the bathroom is a spiritual discipline. So actually I'm curious, is there something that you would say when you reflect on your seminary experience that just sort of stands out to you that is like, all right, this is something that I learned or how I changed or just a specific, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but um, if there's one that comes to mind, um, yeah, that just sort of stands out from your seminary experience. Yeah, I, I would say that that um that it's kind of related. They're they're kind of they're kind of interrelated things. But first of all, you know, going to seminary is kind of like I want to be open to mm. whatever God, you know, has for me. And I, I have core beliefs that don't, you know, I had core beliefs. I'm like, you know, I don't think that these things will, will change, but like, you know, outside of, you know, some of my, some of my core beliefs, like I, I want to be open to whatever it is. And, and I'm, I'm here to learn not to prove what I already think that I know to be true. Mm. And so Fuller was a great experience because Fuller is an interdenominational seminary. You know, I had teachers from a lot of, of different, denominations my old testament professor was an episcopal priest i had my my new testament i didn't know this until until later but but he's anglican Mm. um i had professors (laughs) who were who were baptist disciples of christ uh you know presbyterian just different different denominations whatever pentecostal evangelical covenant just so like Mm. a lot of a lot of different ways uh, and expressions of looking at God. And so that was something that was very, that was very, very beneficial for me to be able to kind of hold that with a loose hand. And so then to be able to, to kind of hold, you know, what my, my own personal beliefs or whatever 
with a, with a loose hand, you know, knowing like I'm a Christian, but like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Right. And so what that ended up doing is being able to approach things with a loose hand and being able to also, like I said, feeling called to ministry. And I had several professors that were like, yeah, you know what, you need to pursue ordination. And so kind of, you know, kind of realizing that I was Anglican and probably have been for a long time, mm-hmm. um, but also, but also Pentecostal still, also still, you know, quite charismatic, but being able to, to have this openness and curiosity about the Christian faith. Mm. And to, and and so with that, the ability to be able to ask hard questions and to not have, have to have all the answers. Right. Right. And so, and so that's something that I appreciate about Anglicanism is that, yeah, there, you know, there are core beliefs that we, that we have core things that, that we, that we hold on to. Um, but even within that, some people might look at those things differently and might interpret mm-hmm. those things differently, but we, but we have a core and we have a, and we have a center, but outside of that, being able to have faith and to have reason and to not see those things as opposed to one another, but seeing them informing one another. Those were values that, that I've learned um, in Fuller Online. And yeah. so, you know, that, that's something that's, that, that has formed me and has made me, I feel like, a, has made me a better Christian, honestly. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that I, I feel like I learned from seminary is just the more that I study and the more that I read and the more that I learn about just the different readings and interpretations and understandings of the Bible and, and yeah, denominations and faith expressions is like the more I, I would say the more that I learned to just say that I don't know and the more comfortable I feel exactly. saying I don't know, you yes. know, like, I think that's like one of the main things I take away. Like, so what did you learn in seminary that I don't know? <laughs> that there's yes, so much, you exactly. know, um, yeah. And just like the nuance, right? Like just the nuances in all of those things and how we exist in such complicated realities. Talking about nuance and com- complexity, um, there was something that you said, uh, I think it was on Twitter a long time ago, and for the life of me, I can't find it because I actually wanted to quote it in my book because <laughs> my book is a lot. Is, <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm like, maybe she'll remember because uh, I talk a lot about like the complexity and the nuance of being a marginalized person of how um, I actually I'm, I'm working on a chapter right now on on marginalized women and how Christianity and especially even liberation theology and just theology in general wants to focus and highlight and sort of center on decent poor women or decent poor people and what I mean by that is you know, the poor people that aren't making money off of sex or the poor people that aren't queer or the poor people that aren't, um, you know, sort of the decent poor that are good, nice churchgoers um, and how that's not the majority of people, right? That's not the majority of poor people um, are, are are doing quote unquote indecent things because they need to survive and because they're poor or because they're, you know, so I talk, I want to focus a lot on this nuance and this complexity of of just being a person, of being just a person existing in the world, like me as a Latina woman, you know, who grew up with a single mom, but then, you know, kind of existed in this space. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where my mind is at. And so the thing that I wanted that you said once that uh, really spoke to me, because I feel the same way about the, the Latino and the Latina community, is you said something along the lines of, and I don't want to quote you exactly, but um, they, and I'm assuming you mean sort of like dominant culture, talk about us, and, and I'm assuming you're talking about black people, black culture, as if all we are is poor, right? And so it's sort of this like monolithic, like, 
you know, the black community or the Latino community, right? And so it's very much the Latino vote or the Latino, you know, way of being or the Latino way of thinking um, or, you know, the black way of thinking or being or existing. Um, and I found that even, you know, even progressives, right? And even myself included, because I am a Western person, like no matter how I want to get away from being a Western person, I still am a Western person. And so we think in these very dichotomous and binary sort of ways, like we can't understand that a person can be a person of faith, but also be engaging in sort of these quote unquote indecent things because life is just life and it's hard and it's whatever. So as someone, as a nuanced person, as a, you know, a, a, a black woman that has all these sort of identities and, and places that you exist and that you speak from and speak to and all these nuances about you, what are your thoughts behind, or if you can just kind of elaborate on what it means like for you as, as you, um, behind the fact that society only talks about the black community in a certain way, or as you said, as if, you know, y'all are just poor or as if we are just whatever, um, you know what I mean? So w what are sort of your thoughts behind that? If you want to just elaborate on what you, wh where your mind was when you, I guess, were thinking that. Yeah, I think that, you know, I get tired of certain narratives that people put out about black people mm -hmm. and we can certainly so, so there's a tension because yes we can say that per capita black people experience poverty at a higher rate than right. white people right. like that's like that's something that that we can yes there are more poor white people because there are more white people period right but whenever you look at as a percentage of the population there are more black people, the percentage of the black population that's poor is disproportionate, especially as you compare it to white people and right. to, and so that's, so that's a problem. And so I want to acknowledge that, but at the same time, I feel like that there is this narrative that that's all we are. Right. Is like, so, so like, that's the, those are, so like there's certain narratives about blackness that and and we even kind of do it to ourselves where there's certain right, narratives right. where it's like other like, like people who have different experiences are somehow excluded and so then somehow aren't as black or aren't black enough or aren't whatever and so like there's this mm. kind of whole constellation of issues that come with it so you know i i grew up in rural missouri as i mentioned a lot of the narratives, a lot of the way that we talk about black people is we talk about quote unquote urban black people. Mm -hmm. So urban becomes code for black. Mm -hmm. And so that completely ignores and erases the reality that there are black people who exist in the suburbs. Right. And there are black people that exist in the country. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we only act like that black folks only live in the city, that we only live in the hood, and that the and that the only oppression that happens to black people happens within that context. Mm. What we're doing is erasing the reality of, of and yeah, I don't I mean you. Know, I don't know what the percentages are, but you're but you're but like you're erasing my experience essentially. Right. So then, the, so then the other narrative of black people, if it's not black people that live in the hood, it's black people that live in. Um, racist small towns or whatever like like we get we have this narrative of people who live in southern contexts that are predominantly black and that they somehow you know, experience racism so if you think of, of places where like you know mississippi or whatever where mm -hmm. the majority of people are are black and then it's white people who are in power but but it's you know because of the legacy of slavery so that's kind of like the other narrative that you get um 
more so we're starting to see kind of narratives of black people in the suburbs but rural black people and i admit you know yes we we definitely are a minority rural black people that grow that that are in you know predominantly white small town context i understand that we're we're a minority but, but my whole point is that whenever we act like that blackness only exists in a certain way we actually end up erasing right like completely erasing other people's experiences so then whenever you start talking about poverty and that type of thing again it erases so it so it says that you know okay well all everybody is poor like all these black people are poor and yes most of us are poor i grew up middle class i was the first generation among the first people not even first generation i was among the first people and on my mom's side of the family to grow up in a middle class type setting but poverty was like a hop, skip, and a jump. Right, like right, so, right. you know, yeah, I had certain privileges because my mom, to my mom worked. Um, uh, she's a speech pathologist, and so she was able to like you know work at a job for a while, that paid her really well. But then I'm also going to the store with relatives and with the people who took care of me as much as my mom did because I grew up in an extended family and I'm paying for food with food stamps. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I'm go I'm going to to the place to go and get commodities. Right. And like so it's so it's kind of like kind of weird existence where where poverty was there and like I, I mean I remember you know counting money and stuff to to make sure that we had enough money to buy stuff. But then that wasn't the reality whenever I was with my mom. Like that so it's just so it's kind of like this this weird intersection of quote unquote making it in poverty. But anyway, all of that to say that I think that that so so there's a the layer of it erasing other people's experiences. And so acting like that blackness, that the only real blackness is poverty. Right. And acting like the only real um, black bodies are the ones that live in the hood. So then the only, so then the only oppression that people experience is are related to those things. Right. And so it erases that like the suburban black person also experiences a certain type of oppression mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or that the rural black person experiences a certain type of oppression. So there's that level of it. But then there's also just the level of like who on earth wants to constantly hear about right. like your what you don't have. Right. And right. and like how deficient somehow you are. So sometimes so somehow your money, the amount of money that you have being equal to the amount of value that you have in society. Right. And so I feel like that inherent and and conservatives and progressives and liberals and everybody, white people are guilty of this across the board, Mm -hmm. is that it's somehow like, because we don't have money, that somehow we are of less value and we should be pitied and we should be whatever. And I'm like... No, like don't have pity on us. Just just treat us right. like treat us right. You don't have to have pity on us. Right. We have a rich culture. My mom grew up poor. I mean, you know, something something that she that she didn't really like to talk a whole lot about because there there's pride in like mm-hmm. well we but we had stuff. But like, you know what? Like like a lot of people come up in just abject poverty, but we have a rich culture. Mm-hmm. And so we are, we are more than our ability to pay for something. And so it just feels, so mm-hmm. it feels like really super dehumanizing in a way, aside from the erasure that, because, and I think that people, and I want to say, you know, talk about the erasure of people are like, well, but the, but you know, but yeah, you, you, know, you have it better off. And yeah, I had it better off than, than, you know, my counterparts who were, you know, living in, in the hood in Kansas city. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's like, I don't, I'm not complaining about like, Oh well, you know, you didn't you didn't see the the money that my family had and whatever. Like that's not the complaint. The complaint 
complaint is the, the erasure of like, like you're saying that my reality doesn't exist and that it's not that it's not valid because it doesn't fit your narrative of who I should be. And so somehow then in that you're going to make me the exception and you're going to make me somehow like, oh, but you're but you're not like other black folks. You're not like mm-hmm. the other black people like you're not like whatever, mm-hmm. whenever it's like, yeah, you know, and I, and I can say being in a, in a predominantly black context right now, you know, having lived in Chicago for a few months. And I, and I haven't even plumbed the depths of it, you know, with being in a pandemic and everything, right. but it's a, it's a different world to be someplace where everybody looks like you. Mm. And I mean, like, I can see the systemic racism. Like I feel the systemic aspects of racism much more here. Cause it's like, I can see the systemic racism and just, you know, like Chicago has a bike service and it only go like, like the, the like the farthest that it goes is like a block away from my house. Mm. Um, they're, they're expanding it a little bit more. They're supposed to be expanding it um, a little bit more in the few months but it's like that's systemic racism we can't yeah. even ride the bike share like come right, on right. um that's like that's systemic racism and those and those are just that's like a li- that's like just a drop in the bucket of the systemic right. racism that exists in chicago that's like the most minor of the systemic racism but it's so baked in but right, but like right. so i i feel the systemic aspects of it more here but my god mm-hmm. with and all this stuff that's been going on with george floyd whenever where I used to live, there is folks w- driving around with Confederate flags, oh, wow. pointing guns at Black people. I don't have to deal with that crap here. Right, I right. have not. I have not seen a solitary Confederate flag mm. since May since May eighteenth. It's like I've and I would see one almost every day. Wow. If I if I left my house, I could I could not swing a stick and see one. Every day I was in situations where I wondered, like if I'm I'm walking my daughter to school, is somebody going to yell the N-word at me out the window? Right. am I gonna like what situation am I gonna have to deal with what fresh hell am I gonna have to deal with mm-hmm. at my daughter's school so yeah it's so yeah. like here I, I like I don't I don't have to worry about that but you know if I, if I stay on my side of town I don't have to worry about that yeah and so like there's so there's a whole so it's like you're you whenever you do all that it's like you you are erasing right. people's whole reality and yeah. their whole sense of, of, of oppression and, and trauma in addition to that, then you're saying that that their only that their only value is mm-hmm. in what they can produce and contribute to society, and I find it and I find that like a super duper big problem. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's so good, and I was so thankful that you you said that because I I do think that yeah, whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever, I feel like it's so easy to stick people in sort of like whatever you can understand as as far as a dichotomy you know as far as these binaries or these categories Mm -hmm. or these things and and yeah people get lost in the nuance and when people get lost in the nuance I mean even that in and of itself is a form of oppression that you can't even find yourself within you know the societal whatever the society has has formed as far as what they think that you are you know you can't even find yourself in that in your own narrative in your own you know who you are as a person and so I think that that's something that I'm I'm really, really, really trying to push against is just having us just see that there is so much nuance and complexity within our cultural uh, communities. And, you know, I mean, I go back home to Miami and there are a lot of very conservative Trump supporting Cubans, right? Like that's just, and, Mm -hmm. and as much as I, you know, hate to admit that it is a reality. So when we talk about, when we're going to sit here and talk about the Latino vote, where, what vote, who, you know, what part of town, you know, what, what city. And so 
I feel like as, you know, as a as someone who comes from, a, you know, a Cuban culture or a Latino culture, I, I want to constantly be pushing back against people, white culture, dominant culture, whatever you want to call it, um, trying to put us into these categories because we not we aren't all this or we aren't all that. And I think that we need to, um, each of us, yeah, just continue speaking from our own place in society and from our own experiences. And that's why I think just you sharing your story is just so important because you, um, yeah, you, you, you come from your specific background and nuance and your own complex identity and we all as people especially if we want to engage in anti-racism work we want to engage in you know racial reconciliation whatever you want to call it work we need to understand that and not um perpetuate you know what dominant culture wants to do and that stick us all in categories and that mm -hmm. we don't fit in a lot of the times if you want to let people know um where they can follow you, um, where they can, yeah, find out more if they don't already know about your work. Yeah, so um, you can follow me. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter as the Armchair Com, which is short for the Armchair Commentary. That's my blog. On Facebook and Instagram, it's just my name A L L Y H E N N Y. You can also follow me from my social or follow my social media from my blog, which is the Armchair Commentary at the Armchair Commentary .com. And so www.thearmchaircommentary.com. Um, and so there's some, some links and stuff to my social media there. Have an awesome weekend. Thank you again. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye. Bye-bye.